Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. Many have said that Wales's political institutions have come of age during the pandemic, and the same can be said for the scrutiny of those institutions by journalists. Joining us tonight is one of the best of those, Welsh Affairs Editor of Wales Online and author of Lockdown Wales, Will Hayward. Hey, Will. I, that's a very generous introduction. It's very deserved. A lot of people will know you from your work at Wales Online, uh, your first book, Lockdown Wales, and your regular appearances on Times Radio's Disunited Kingdom. But uh, tell us a bit about yourself, how, how you came to Wales and became Welsh Affairs Editor at Wales Online. It was a really weird route. So uh, before I, I went to uni in Cardiff, I'm from um, the Midlands originally. And before I came to Cardiff, I did all sorts of weird jobs, none of which were remotely to do with journalism. Uh, worked in pubs, call centres. Um, <laughs> looking back, this bit's quite weird, but me and my friend Richard ran a disco business called Dick and Willie Discos, which I can't believe we did. Um, I went to Cardiff Uni, did a degree in politics, fell in love with Cardiff and Wales and I think like so many alumni just never ever left. Um, I actually wanted to, when I graduated, go into journalism but I'm pretty uh, dyslexic. I've uh, got fairly severe dyslexia and I just thought that isn't for me. So I started a business doing sports coaching and I designed an app which let people track their fitness. I did that for about three years while also uh, working with youth offenders and then after I got to 25 and I thought I don't want to do any of this and so I Gave up all that and I enrolled on Cardiff, back at Cardiff, uh, did the Masters in Journalism, um, got my shorthand and my media law and, and all that jazz. And uh, yeah, then I got, I did work experience um, at the Western Mail and uh, then got off the job at, uh, at the same place. And I've just never left. <laughs> How would you describe the Welsh media landscape now? Obviously, you've been working in it a little while. Do you think it's an increasingly healthy industry in Wales? Yeah, from what I've observed, it's... It's improved a lot, I think, just in the time that I've been involved. What I would say is, especially over the last two years, 18 months, there are far more people reading Welsh media, which is specifically about Wales, which is one of the, I'd say, the biggest benchmark you can have for success, um, that people are engaging with that and actually aware that it exists. Um, nothing makes something more healthy than people actually realising it's there. Um from Wales Online point of view, I think we've broken some massive stories over this year during what is essentially one of the biggest stories in living memory. We got scoop of the year for um, our coverage of care homes. I mean, we broke the story linking asymptomatic uh, discharges from hospital with care homes and demonstrated that they had been made aware of this risk. So something like personally quite proud of. It seems weird to be proud of such a bleak topic, but um, you take my point. I think the other thing I'd point to is in my just in my fairly short career, I've seen a lot of redundancies, and it does seem like they touch water in the rearview mirror. Um, we just hired eighteen new journalists. Um, I mean, when was the last time we were able to say that? Um, that's a that's bigger than a lot of places' newsrooms, and we've just hired those as as trainees and seniors. So that's fantastic news. I mean, just in terms of our traffic, we get about nine to ten million people reading the site a month, which obviously is more than Wales. Um, but uh, and that accounts for about 60 million page views, but the vast, vast majority of them are actually in Wales. And it is the, the relevant local news that gets the most reads. That's been something that I'm really proud of. And I mean, I think for me, the thing I've really liked is we've started doing a, a newsletter called Wales Matters, which is essentially when we curate all of our agenda and political-led stories into one place. We send that out with some analysis, which is something we weren't doing a couple of years ago. I mean, it's essentially, it's a bit like a, a leader in a newspaper, like you might read in the Western Mail, but tailored for online. And the thing we have learned from that is that although 
speaking to lots of people, you think there's a real appetite widely for these kind of stories. Actually, <laughs> what we've seen is it it takes um, it, it, there's a bit of an art to getting people to read stuff which you know is incredibly relevant to their lives, but it's getting them to understand this actually is really relevant to your life, and that's that's really been the uh, the challenge. But overall, I think the Welsh media, from what I can see, is in a better place than it was just a couple of years ago. What impact do you think sites such as Nation.Cymru and the National Wales have had on the Welsh media landscape? Did you ever expect there to be another hard copy, uh, a physical newspaper title launched in Wales again, for example? Well, I'm, I'm always happy to see any <laughs> hard copy of uh, um, any journalism project uh, product come out. That's, uh, that's just awesome, isn't it? That's great. Having more journalists and more journalism and other outlets can only be a good thing, can't it? I know, especially, as I said, in some redundancy, seeing people being hired is great. And the, the issue is never that are not enough stories. The issue is, which ones do we tell with limited resources? So if there's more people out there telling stories, that's a good thing. I know some people very well at Na uh, the National and at Nation. Um, and um, the people I know there, um, people like David Owens at um, uh, Nation, people like Sarah Hughes at the National, are just really, really good journalists um, and know their business. My, In terms of how it changes the landscape, I think you've, you've got to remember, especially with the National at the moment, it is a baby. The point I'd make is, say there was an explosion in Cardiff today, you'd probably come to Wales Online, you might go to the BBC, but it's very hard resources-wise for a new organisation to do that. So I think they're doing some good stuff in terms of like the analysis, both, both organisations, but I think that day-to-day -day breaking news is, is something that is really resource-heavy and it's quite hard to, to do. So um, I, I, I tend not to comment ever negatively on any other journalists or news organisations. I, I genuinely wish a lot of other people would follow the same suit about us. Um, but um, the frustration I do get, and I've gone off a bit of a tangent here, but I work from home on my own all day, so I've got to rant sometimes. One of my frustrations is with the keyboard warriors you get who are just screaming into their own echo chamber. And actually, they're doing nothing meaningful to make changes. One of our trainees who are going out, speaking to people, telling their stories, um, that are happening on the ground in Wales are doing more meaningful good in the space of one week than these slacktivists will be doing in a year. And I think that's the thing. You, like, you get change in journalism when you speak to people who don't necessarily already agree or already know about something. And just shouting on social media and, for one of the better phrase, calling people out ultimately does very little to change anything. What's your overall impression of the development in alternative news sources, things like not to blow our own trumpet, but podcasts and YouTube and video and video information sources, things like that? Do you think that's an interesting avenue for growth in news media in Wales? Yeah, well, um, I, think, I think you guys do a fantastic job. The issue I have is it has never, ever been easier for somebody to interact for want of a better word with an mp or a politician or a councillor it's so easy i could go on boris johnson's facebook page right now and i could say whatever i wanted to and he could say well whoever manages his social media um he could say exactly what he wants to me but the problem is proper journalism isn't uh, as you say talking about oh yeah um this person said x y and z a lot of it is about appraising that, analysing that. So, for instance, there was a recently there was an anti-vax protest. We, I had comment from dozens and dozens of people there through various ways they'd tried to interact. I made that decision, actually, to not report that en masse because we've given that issue some 
coverage and actually what a lot of them were saying wasn't underpinned by anything except their own opinion which actually wasn't worth anything because they had no they had no background in epidemiology or anything so I didn't want to give them the same platform so journalism isn't just look at what's happening here it's about summarizing and contextualizing it and you can't do that if you're just holding up you're just printing out or publishing stuff that a politician puts on their social media so good objective journalism can be done through loads of different forms some podcasts do amazing stuff some videos do amazing stuff but it's all about how it's how it's done so good podcasts are good in the same way that good print media is good but lazy bad uninformed journalism of any form whichever medium you choose to display that actually is is just well it's not useless it's harmful potentially isn't it well, can I ask a, a question, Will, about the, the, the business of journalism in Wales? Wales does, isn't blessed with a national news uh, ecosystem in the same way that both England and Scotland are, because we, we, we never really had the kind of national uh, governments in situ that kind of would kind of be the kind of thing that that would grow around. So when the digital revolution came, a lot of organisations, Wales Online included, took an awful lot of flack for trying to make money out of digital by doing a lot of what was called listicles or clickbait and that that kind of tag has kind of stayed around even though maybe that's not reflective of what Wales Online is so how, how do you feel about that and um, what's the sort of health of the business of journalism uh, in Wales? I think it's uh, I think it's a really fair question I think just if we talk about listicles I mean the great thing with online is you can choose the best way to tell a story when I first started um, at Wales Online, The Echo, Western Mail. I had to do a 350 to 400 word piece for The Echo. I then had to do an 800 word piece for The Mail. And then I had to do a piece for online, which was taken from them. And actually, sometimes the best way to tell a story isn't in 350 words or 850 words. Sometimes the best way to tell a story is through a list. So I did a piece recently on the 29 things that a Welsh government inquiry, uh, a Welsh inquiry into COVID should look at the best way to tell that story was a listicle because it was a complicated, in-depth piece of journalism, which frankly, not many people will read 6,000 words online. And the way to do that is to break it up and make it accessible. So a listicle was an absolutely the best way to tell that story. But on clickbait, I think when we talk about clickbait, um, we need a definition because there's so many phrases aren't there out there which just mean nothing because everyone thinks they mean something different. I mean, God, phrase neoliberal, mainstream media, what do any of these things even mean anymore? You know, God. Um, but if we're talking about clickbait, if we say clickbait could be one of two things, it's either a story which, um, a headline which grossly exaggerates the contents of the article, or it's a headline which is completely irrelevant to the article. It says, look at what happened in Cardiff today, and you click on it and it sells you Viagra, for instance. Um, I like to think we've never done that. <laughs> um, in terms of the exaggerated headlines, it really depends on what the content of the article is. Because say I was to did the headline, the shocking moment that a bus swerves across the M4 and nearly wipes out a family of fours Nissan Micra. Like people might be like, oh, that's a clickbait headline. But if you've got a video where a bus nearly plows into a Nissan Micra <laughs> with a family of four in it, that is a literal description of what is actually quite a sensational and shocking story. If that bus weaves slightly in the wind as it goes over the bridge, the Severn Bridge, and a Nissan Micra happens to be nearby, that would be clickbait. That would be a gross exaggeration of the content. 
But what people do seem to get furious about, enraged about, is the idea that the idea of any headline is for you to click on that article. Every single headline in the history of the world is designed to make you click on it. Like you don't see an advert for, it's essentially the advert for the story. You don't see a, a Mars bar advert and just start screaming buy bait at the TV, do you? You just don't do it. Um, essentially, you want to be read as a journalist and a news organization. A news organization in the main wants to be read because that's how they make money. Journalists, I would suggest, mainly want to be read because they want to make a meaningful difference and they want to do journalism that matters. Stuff doesn't matter if people don't read it. If stuff isn't being read, it, it's, it can be meaningful to the people it's about. It can make a difference on a small scale, but you're never going to invoke meaningful change if things aren't seen. The other thing I just say is when we talk about Facebook, so Facebook is um, we get quite a bit of traffic through Facebook. But the stories we put on Facebook are stories which do well on Facebook. The stories that are just going to bomb on Facebook and no one's going to read it. There's no point putting on there because nobody's going to read it. But very much, Facebook is a very small window into the journalism we do like as i say we get we promote things through newsletters stuff like that but you wouldn't buy the newspaper skip to the horoscopes and go is this news of course you wouldn't because it's just a small part annoyingly i mean i can't believe newspapers still have horoscopes i'd get rid of them in a second but i think one thing i would draw attention to as well is this whole thing of high impact articles so i get measured as a reporter on how many clicks i get but i also get measured on how many high impact articles i get so a high impact article, I can't remember the exact definition, but it's it gets over a, a certain amount of clicks, but it also has to have, I think it's either a minute or 90 seconds of engagement and 90 seconds on an online article is massive. And the reason for that is, um, say we put up a, a Facebook um, article, um, an article on Facebook, which says, Audi is now selling like five litre Prosecco bottles for like 10 quid. I mean, annoyingly, that'll probably get about half a million views. But every person that reads that isn't going to make Wales Online their home for Audi-based Prosecco news, are they? What we find is with those people will come to the site, they'll read that story and then they'll leave. But if we do a story which is a high impact article, which is relevant, informed, very um, engaging journalism, which matters, that might only get 30,000 views. But if all of those people stay with Wales Online and think, actually, I'm going to make Wales Online my regular source of news. And they come back three times a day, every day of the year. Not only does that massively outperform that one Audi Prosecco story, um, it will also means that it insulates us against slow news days, for instance, because people are coming to us to actively of their own, of our own accord. And I think, I mean, the evidence does show that if somebody reads a high impact article, they're more likely to keep coming back. And that's what we also get measured on is really informed you know, award-winning journalism. And so that to me is um, a long tangent in answer to what you asked was, it's a very simple question. So sorry about that. Well, well, I'm going to take, take the opportunity. I love being able to quiz a journalist so I can ask a follow-up of the journalist now. So before we move on to other things, I think one of the things that is a charge that gets levelled against Wales Online, I think it'd be interesting to hear what the the thinking is behind it is that there are an awful lot of good articles, exactly what you said, really good articles that appear in the Western Mail but not all of them appear on Wales Online on the website, or at least they haven't historically. What's what's the reasoning behind that? I, I mean, I would say that the vast majority of stuff in the Western Mail is also on our website. I mean, a lot of the Western Mail is built from what's on Wales Online. What will go in the Western Mail and what will go on the website are things that are going to be read in either medium. So 
it's tough, isn't it? Because if there's a story which, I mean, you, stuff doesn't just go from the paper and automatically appear online. It's not automatic. You have to dress a story. There's quite a lot of effort that goes into getting a story ready to go online or rewriting it. Because as I say, sometimes a, a long Western Mail lead might not actually be in a format which will really be read by anyone online. And as I say, if people aren't reading it, it's not worth putting that up because that resource could have been put into putting something else up. So it, it really does depend. I mean, I, the vast majority of stuff from Western Mail is going on Wales Online. And actually, there's some really, really good stuff that's gone on Wales Online that just doesn't work for print and it won't go in print. What I try and do, and I know a few of the other reporters try and do it, is we try and explain the process behind a lot of our stories and how we get to them. So I, I think one of the problems we have with people relying on what Di has said on Facebook rather than actual accredited journalist is because they don't really know how news is gathered. I think some people think there's a vidi printer of news, which journalists just pick out and then spin however they like. Actually, every single, like the best stories are the ones that without you wouldn't have been told. So I always try, if I do a, a long investigation or something, is to explain, kind of show my workings. And if I don't know something or I've had to hypothesize something, make that clear within it. Um, if that makes sense. And I think that builds trust and stuff. I know I've gone off on another tangent. Here. Yeah, no, it's all good. So so um, just to move on, you have, um, po you're possibly the first uh, journalist uh, in the history of Wales to have the title Welsh Affairs Editor. What is a Welsh Affairs Editor and what, what are Welsh Affairs? I don't know, but I think Vaughan Roderick might also have that <laughs> title. So I don't want to, I don't want to jump in ahead of me. You're, if you you're in very good company if you are. <laughs> um, do you know what, in terms of Welsh Affairs, I, I wish I knew. <laughs> um, it's, I think, to be honest, the job title was kind of a, a, a way of giving me a platform to essentially go where the biggest stories are, which is, I mean, a really privileged position for me to be in. I mean, if you think of, a, it is essentially a political role. If you think about political stories as like uh, a bullseye, like a, an archery bullseye, you've got like the real kind of super hard journalism, uh, like news right in the middle, which is essentially in committee X, this was said. You've then got the broader one, which is say, this is what happened in the Senate today. Uh, this is what Mark Drakeford said. Then beyond that, in the kind of wider circle, you've got how these things actually impact upon people in Wales. And actually, that's the thing that most people care about. So let's do an example. Say in a Senate committee meeting, they say that 5,000 women have been turned away from women's refuges in the last year. We could report saying that quite shocking statistic. Or the real story isn't that politician X has said that, like ultimately... That, that doesn't really matter. The people that matter are those women who are standing outside refuges. So what we would, my job is to speak to people in that position and try and understand that and tell those stories in an accessible way. My, my brief at the start of getting the job was it's got to be good and it's got to be read, um, which is exciting. So I get a lot of freedom. But the problem is it's also I've got no one to blame but myself. If I turn up in the morning, I've got nothing. So uh, it's, it's actually a source of constant and unending stress. You're just talking about the Senedd uh, there, Will. How, how have you found reporting on the Senedd and the Welsh Government? I know we said in the intro that it feels like those institutions have come of age somewhat during the pandemic. Do you think that's true or do you think they're still developing and still developing somewhat in the national consciousness? I think we've come a very long way in the last 18 months, but that doesn't mean we still have got an incredibly long way to go. Um, I gave a talk at Cardiff University recently um, talking about, so I've plugged Cardiff University a lot during this, um, uh, talking about the pandemic essentially awakening Wales's devolved consciousness. So let's talk about Mark Drakeford, for instance. If I um, 
put Mark Drakeford in a headline two years ago, it would have killed the story. It just meant nothing to anyone. Like genuinely, now if you put Mark Drakeford in a story, in a headline, people just go wild for it. They can't get enough for this previous social worker slash public policy professor who loves cheese. And I don't think this is going to be a genie that you can put back in the bottle. I think the thing to also bear in mind that, you know, this was the first election where we had uh, people who had lived exclusively under devolution, which is a which is a big, big thing. I think it's unsurprising that we've come a long way quite quickly because going back to this issue of relevance and making things relevant to people, Mark Drakeford before had a lot of powers and he might argue had almost exactly the same powers as he has now, but the visible link between those powers and the impact on people's lives was huge. I mean, in the last 18 months, that guy standing on a podium could tell you whether you could go and see your mother in a care home. No wonder you now know who he is. Of course you know who he is. He can tell you whether you can buy a non-essential item in Sainsbury's. Like, crikey, <laughs> can you even imagine that, like, two years ago? It's just insane, isn't it? My scepticism for it comes when, in terms of the awareness of it, is how far it goes beyond people just knowing who Vaughan Geffing and Mark Drakeford are. I think that remains to be seen. I do think the institutions have become more, more well-known. One thing I have observed, which I think is odd, is that I think people, especially of a certain political persuasion, even if they're not Labour supporters, are probably a bit more, defend, uh, they defend the Welsh government more than I'm, I would think is healthy. I, I think the Welsh government made a long list of mistakes, and there's not likely to be a Welsh inquiry into this. And people seem to conflate criticism of the Welsh government with criticism of Wales. And I think that is an incredibly unhealthy development. You, you can't want more autonomy for Wales and potentially independence without having a lot more scrutiny of it. And a lack of scrutiny means bad governance and bad governance makes it harder to achieve your ambitions. If you are an advocate for an independent Wales or Devo Max or however, Home Rule, whatever you want to refer it to, you should be front and centre demanding the highest standards of the Welsh government because nothing will hurt your aims more than a system, a devolved system, which isn't working as well as it could. So I think people have become more aware of it. I think a certain group have become very defensive of the Welsh government as though it is Wales. They're elected by us to keep us, well, to represent us. And I think I think that's all just a symptom of essentially a, a young polity. And I, I think it will develop and I think uh, it will um, evolve. Don't worry, we'll get you back on independence in a minute. But... Beyond coverage of the pandemic and coverage of restrictions, how much interest is there actually, do you think, amongst your readers in the day-to-day -day actions of the Senate? I mean, how much interest is there in the whole of the UK in the day-to-day -day actions of politicians? I mean, it's very limited. I mean, it's just, it's sad, isn't it? It's not that relevant to people's lives. People don't necessarily see that link. And I don't think that is just a Welsh issue. If you look at the most read stories on, well, I can see the most read stories um, on the Express, the Mirror. If you look at the most read stories on Mail Online, the most read stories aren't political stories. It's not what people are that engaged with. Um, I think there are issues in Wales of, I mean, if I live in Merthyr Tydfil, I voted Conservative in the last election, I get London-based tabloid as my print media, and I, I watch the news and I turn off at 10.15 when it switches to the local news. Why would I know anything about the Senate? Like, because I'm, I'm of an age where I wasn't taught it in school, whereas now everyone coming through schools will at least know what it is and have an awareness of it, and it will be what they know. So I think there is shortcomings. I don't think it's a Wales-only problem, though I think Wales has its own individual challenges as well as 
the wider ones which affect a lot of the UK. Do you know what's interesting, Will? Before we, we, we get into more serious subjects, what, what I find very interesting about the Westminster media landscape is a lot of it seems to be quite salacious gossip about politicians, their advisors, the sort of the relationships between political actors. And our media here doesn't seem to really care about that. Do you think that shows that we're a bit more grown up here or that the interest levels quite aren't there in, in relation to that kind of news? As, a, as I say, I don't necessarily uh, comment negatively on other news organisations unless, I don't, deem them, unless I don't deem them to be an actual news organisation, in which case I'll go nuts. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I think part of the problem is, and I, I was political editor at Wales Online for the first year of the pandemic as maternity cover um, before I took on this new role. And I was in the lobby group, um, in the WhatsApp group with all the other lobby correspondents. We had like chats and we we went you know we we talked um, about what questions were going to be asked and that sort of stuff to, to me I, I mean I can only speak from my point of view I just don't care about the gossip stuff it just doesn't interest me I just find it so boring I mean I don't care about the gossip among people I know and like let alone people I don't know um, but I think once you're in that world it's so so easy to for that to matter and seem relevant I mean, ultimately, there's, there are arguments that these things do matter. I mean, if Dominic Cummings, who apparently was making a great deal of decisions, dislikes the prime minister's partner, who also seems to be making quite a lot of decisions that affect lots and lots and lots of people, there is absolutely a public interest in reporting that. The problem is I, I can't bring myself to care. I think that's part of the problem as well. Like I, I go through every year, I go through every single Welsh MP's expenses and declaration of interest, and I publish them. Um, and I try and find out every bit of dirt I can from within that. That would probably be a harder thing for me to do if I was on really good personal terms with every single one of them and saw them every day. So actually, from my point of view, being a bit more arm's length and that sort of stuff, I find advantageous. But then again, <laughs> if something happens in the Senate or Westminster, none of them are going to want to tell me anything, are they? <laughs> um, so it is a balancing act. And there are other reporters who do that very well. To be honest, a lot of those stories come from being part of the press pack in Westminster. And uh, the day I started as, um, well, the month before I started as um, political editor, I thought I was going to be in Downing Street and in um, Westminster all the time. And then uh, someone ate a bat or a pangolin in um, Wuhan and everything went to, to hell. So I just did the whole thing from this room. I'm talking to you from now. Yeah. So I, I don't know if we are above all that. I just think we, we don't um, engage with it as much, perhaps. On the on the subject of uh, of lockdown, we're back onto it again. You've obviously written your first book, Lockdown Wales, during this period. How did you come to turn that all these um, all these thoughts and all this information into that book? And what did you learn when you were writing it? Um, it was weird. So the first couple of months of lockdown, I was um, I, I started as political editor pretty much the day after we went into lockdown, um, which was a bit surreal. There was so much interesting stuff happening. Like we had the collapse of the Roach deal. We had smaller things which really mattered to people, like the fact the Welsh government took two weeks longer to arrange priority delivery slots for supermarkets and then had two conflicting reasons why that had happened. And people forget about that. But the people who didn't have any food don't forget about it. And there was I, I was part of the lobby group. I was seeing the Guardian and Mirror journalists asking every single day in that meeting, where is Dominic Cummings? And, you know, we found out you know, why they're asking that question. And I just thought there's a, a few times when you're a journalist where you do feel like you're reporting on actual history and you feel like, oh, this is going to really matter. 
like long term, like this is going to be poured over. I'm going to, you know, this might be a primary source in A level history in like 50 years. And I, I just thought I really felt like there wasn't going to be a, the Welsh angle told um, because there was so much Welsh specific stuff happening. And like with the setup of the testing centers, I mean, that was an absolute palaver. And I, I had so much good stuff on it that people just weren't, might be lost, um, especially if there's no Welsh inquiry, I might add. So I, <laughs> this probably doesn't make me sound very professional. I got quite drunk one night and um, I sent a BCC email to about a hundred literary agents and publishers saying, I'm doing this. I think this would be a really interesting thing to do. And um, Saren came back to me, uh, the Welsh publisher. <laughs> then interestingly, when I went on the um, UK government press briefing about a month later, I suddenly got loads of other offers for books as well, which was uh, a bit surreal. Um, so yeah, so um, I ended up, yeah, that's uh, when I put it together. So what have I learned? I've learned not to write 90,000 words in 10 weeks while doing a full-time job in a pandemic. Uh, on, a, on a micro level, the things I learned journalistically were when it comes to questioning. So I did Facebook lives with the first minister. I questioned him at the height of pandemic two or three times a week in the, the live briefings. And I think the thing that really jumped out at me is when you're training to be a reporter, you imagine asking that kind of killer question, like that kind of gotcha. And I think there's a hundred percent a place for that. But in the middle of a pandemic, when you've got a, you're in a really privileged position as a reporter because I get to ask the, the man who is deciding whether people can see their family in a care home I get to ask him in a Facebook live I asked him about 30 questions and some people would would probably literally kill for that privilege and to quote one of my editors he said to me when I wanted to ask her like I wanted to ask someone about climate change because obviously it's a massive issue and he was like well people are immensely curious about this virus that's killing them <laughs> so actually one of the questions I asked him it wasn't the why have you done this why isn't there PPE we did ask those questions but it's also you've imposed a local lockdown are people on Caerphilly what if somebody has uh, is divorced can their kid go between the families and that and when you do a question like that you get dozens of emails from people going oh my god thank you so much so actually you you realize that you've there is a balance to be made between that calling out and that holding to account and also just helping people understand what is happening in their lives in real time. The other thing I would say is uh, the thing I've learned on like a bigger level is that the current devolution setup, whether you think it shouldn't exist at all or whether you think it's not enough, it just doesn't work, does it? And that isn't a political statement to say that. You can't look at the current setup and think that this, this is good. I see we, we, we've got a prime minister who happens to double up as the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom and the Prime Minister of England, that'd be like the Governor of California also being the President of the United States. Like, it just doesn't work. And I think that's something I've just, my biggest takeaway, and I think that came across in the book, is I couldn't believe how creaking this system was with, I mean, if we're going to COVIDify it, it had lots of underlying health conditions. And it, I mean, New Zealand would have been dropping off our food at the end of the drive if it had been um, like that. So, yeah. That's what that, they'd be the things I, I take from it. And I, I know I've rambled off again. I'm sorry. So, Will, you obviously got the bug for writing books. So we understand that you're working on your second book. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is, how it came about and where it's taking you? Yeah. So next book um, is going to be, um, it's not with Saren this time, it's with Biteback. Um, and it's going to be published in hardback, which is exciting. It's about Welsh independence. So for me, uh, as I've said, as a reporter, you want to write stories that matter about big things that change or enhance the debate. And I think Brexit taught us a lot of things, but if Brexit taught us one thing, it's how toxic these things can become if 
they're not debates taken from the point of view of fact or in or in actual information. So this book isn't in favour or against independence. Um, I have my own views on it, which I'd happily go into if, if you like. But I, I think, to, to be honest, I think what people are crying out for on an issue which is actually very new to most of Wales is they want to understand and be able to form an opinion based on kind of objective analysis. As an example, I will be going through huge areas of the Welsh independence debate and actually assessing it. So things like broad issues, like what currency would we use? What would be the advantage and disadvantage of a particular currency? What happens to the Queen? Um, you know, everything, every few seconds, I see someone from US Cymru say, Ireland are doing great, we'll be Ireland. How feasible is it that Wales is like Ireland when there is already an Island? That is something that is worth discussing. Um, but there'll be other bits in it. So I'm also gonna have a chapter in like how to form your own opinion, because I, I really think that someone will read this book and two different people might come out with very different opinions based on what matters to them. If you are passionately of the view that Wales can't really fulfill its destiny on the world stage without being an independent country, there's actually very little arguments that are gonna sway you otherwise. If you're somebody who's wants to, you know, you might not be very well off. You might have a quite an insecure job. Will this make your job more insecure? Will it make it less insecure? And these are all tough questions, but I don't just explore it from the, here's a question, let's look at it. I also look at, well, look at what Wales could have been like from previous crises. So 2008 um, banking crisis, how would have Wales fared as an independent country? COVID, how would Wales have done as an independent country? Would it add more access to vaccines? Would it have been better if it would have been able to secure its own PPE? Um, and also look at future crisis. I mean, we all know that the climate climate change is going to be the story. I mean, that is the tidal wave coming up behind the little wave that is COVID, isn't it? That is happening. That is already happening. That's We're not going to be able to stop that. Are we best off tackling those issues as an independent country or as part of a bigger union? So that's something we're, we're all going to, I'm going to be exploring through the book. Uh, the thing I will say is it is going to start from the point of view of the current setup doesn't work, as I say. But I think a lot of people on both sides of the political arrangement might not think it works anyway. I don't think that is necessarily um, a contentious thing. Quite often the answers to these questions are going to be, we don't know, or it depends. And actually that is absolutely fine. In fact, that is good. Because in Brexit, for Brexit debate, there was no it depends or we don't know. We knew the answer to everything. Every single thing in Brexit, there was an answer. Whether you're on one side or the other, it's going to be absolutely disastrous. It's going to be the easiest negotiation in history. And quite often, the truthful answer was, we don't have a clue. And actually, sometimes the answers in this debate are, in the Welsh independence book, is we don't know, or it depends. And actually, then people are going to be making a decision from an informed place. And the reason, I'm sorry to keep going, but the reason I think this really matters is, I think Brexit has done a lot of damage to the UK, but I think the biggest amount of damage it's done is actually the division that it sowed. Whether you are on either side of the debate, I think it's sowed a, a great deal of damage um, in terms of just how we treat each other and how we feel about the country in which we live and what our values are. A huge part of that has come from just a terribly informed debate in the first place. And I love Wales and I want to live in Wales for a long time. And I will rest my life, hopefully. Um, and I don't want the same thing to happen. And if I can write a book, which means that the same quality, well, low quality of debate doesn't happen over a future Welsh independence referendum, then I feel like that's a that's a book worth writing. One of the things that we've talked about before about this uh, is that I think you mentioned that you're, you felt that the debate about independence in Wales was 
quite immature in that we don't have like a huge amount of published work on the subject. It hasn't been worked through by huge numbers of people. And and actually, in some ways, we haven't even defined what the word independence means in this context. So where would you see the starting point for this? And what does independence mean in, in the frame that you're creating for it in your book? Oh, God, who knows? Every single day that goes past, I think, what the hell have I done here? Um, It's just a bottomless pit. I mean, when I pitched the book, I I probably naively thought there would be coherent, well-established arguments on both sides. And the the problem is, on the independent side, there are some people who have thought about this immensely, um, but they are a very small amount of people. And I would suggest it's not being critiqued objectively Uh, and there are some people who have talked about independence a lot, but I wouldn't say have necessarily really critically assessed their own views. But on the other side, there, there isn't a no side like we'd seen in Scotland. There just isn't. There's just everyone else living their lives. Do you know what I mean? There's, I mean, and I refuse to put people like um, the, um, I can't even remember their name, like um, the Brexit party, the abolished the assembly party. I, I refuse to set them up as the opposition because they're the only other people who've really addressed it, to be honest. Um, so it's not, as developed as I maybe hoped it would be. What I will say is some people have, some individuals have really delved into this. And I've had genuinely, for the first four months of this, researching this book, I just spoke to people. I spoke to people in pubs, cafes. I mean, I've gone about four stone, but it's been awesome because I just had some of the most interesting conversations I've ever had for people who just live and breathe this topic. I found it just like fascinating. I mean, part of what I've hated about doing it is I feel like I'm just... We can't swear in this, can we? Um, I feel like I've just been urinating on bonfires um, throughout the entire time. There's been so many people who've come forward saying, yeah, we've got this, this, this. And then I'm asking really in-depth questions, maybe even a bit pernickety. And then there isn't an answer. And this isn't because most of I, the vast, vast majority of these people aren't coming from a point of malice. They're coming from a point of they want to improve the country that they live in. And they see this as a really good way to do it. And that's a really, well, a really admirable point of view, but also... If you're asking somebody to say, say I'm a um, I'm a plumber in RCT, and I went to school, um, left, got my did my apprenticeship, I've worked my absolute ass off, and I've now got myself a, a decent house. I'm not rich, but I'm not badly off. I've got my family. I go on my my holiday a year, and I'm content. To go to them and say you've got to take this leap with us, you've got to risk this stuff because things could be better. I don't know how people have the confidence to do it, to be fair, like fair play to them. But you've got to stand up to a really rigorous scrutiny in order to do that. Um, And I think that's what I'm going to kind of try and do with the book. Um, What I would say is uh, some people have done really delved into and really theorized what an independent world could look like. I'm not doubting that. And some of it, I mean, some of it I'm going to borrow heavily from in the book and credit them. (laughs) But I am very surprised about the lack of attention on northeast wales this is the most commuted out of area of the uk and speaking to some people from other parts of wales you'd almost think it wasn't part of wales and i think that is uh, extreme hubris to do that um i think that is part of this nation that you are building and f- apparently freeing and you haven't got an answer for a lot of the questions that are gonna i mean you're gonna have very different questions about independence if you live in Wrexham, Flintshire or Denbyshire and you commute to Merseyside for work than you are if you live in rural Carmarthenshire or Ceredigion and you need to have an answer for that and it can't be dismissed as 
oh well loads of countries have borders well you need to you need to really lay out exactly why this is going to happen and I, I think that's something that i wouldn't suggest has been thoroughly done i don't think it has been i think a lot of people have attempted it very uh, but i don't think it's um i don't think it's got the attention it deserves when it is such an important issue frankly Talking about your, your research and the conversations you've been having, Will, you recently tweeted a photo of, of the books you've been reading in preparation of writing. Uh, is, is there any of those books that you found particularly helpful or any of the interviews or any of the people you've talked to that you found particularly affecting to you in the process of writing? Um, I, I sat down and interviewed Hugh Edwards in a Starbucks in um, in London, which was a bit surreal. It, uh, he, he was actually really, really... I mean, I think most people would have him for... Um, the president of um, an independent Wales, although apparently the structure for an independent Wales is for an independent Wales to decide. Um, I, I found him uh, to, he was very engaging and somehow managed to stay impartial on an issue and be so interesting about it, I thought was quite impressive. Um, but one of the books I actually found really, really good was actually one which was against Scottish independence called Should Old Acquaintance Be Forgot? And it wasn't just because it was an awesome title. Um, I thought how they, that assessment was really interesting. I think I spoke to um, to Sean Jobbins, who started Yes Cymru, and I had one of the most interesting chats um, I've had with him. It was it was just brilliant. Um, I, I love talking to people who care about stuff. Um, I found that very engaging. Um, I had ice cream with Alan Cairns, which is also a bit surreal, on Barry Island. In terms of the books, some of them are really broad, like there's Imagined Communities, which is like one of the seminal texts on nationalism, which made me realise I'm just not going to be clever enough to ever write anything again, um, which was a bit soul destroying, to be honest. Um, I'm currently, I read um, Whose Wales Is It, um, which was, um, which was I found for, for an Englishman coming to, to Wales. Um, I mean, sometimes I think my I'd find this book much easier to do if, or I'd get less stick if my name was Willem App Haywood. Um, or then sometimes I think actually the fact I'm, I'm not necessarily from Wales might put me in a good position to write it because I'm exactly the sort of person that the yes side need to convince, I guess. Um, I'm also realizing when, um, realizing, reading When Was Wales. It's actually um, next to my, uh, my toilet at the moment. And uh, I've, um, it's great. I'm uh, spending hours, <laughs> probably a bit too much information there, but um, uh, reading through that, um, which is great. And um, part of the research as well, like I've been, I've been trying to just speak to just lay people in pubs and just asking randomers, you know, what do you think of Welsh independence, which gets you some weird looks. But I mean, I went to Porth and I just walked around the high street and asked every single person I met about Welsh independence and what they thought of it. And I mean, that actually gave me far more, I think, insights into the challenges that are ahead and the issues that independence would need to solve, because it's that thing of salience, isn't it? I mean, everyone, the vast majority of people think we should reform the House of Lords, but the Lib Dems aren't sweeping to a stonking majority, are they? So it, it, it's how much an issue matters to people. And I think Plaid struggled um, a bit with um, demonstrating that link between this is how independence is going to make your life better and this is why. Um, I think they, there was quite a bit of gap between what they were selling and what people wanted to buy. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the, the whole issue about sort of autonomy for Wales is really, uh, as you, uh, you know, as uh, no doubt you are writing, is a really fascinating subject. But well, I think one of the things that I always kind of think about first is is how much Wales, the people of Wales actually have the control to be able to decide their own future. And I don't know how much you're, you plan to explore the the kind of forces of unionism and the kind of particular brand of unionism that we're seeing exercised at the moment from Westminster, which sort of is largely seeking to 
override a lot of the independence movements, both in Wales and in Scotland. But considering how much further advanced the independence movement is in Scotland, and the fact that the, the Boris barrier is managing to hold that back at the moment by simply not granting the legal basis for a referendum on independence, even though uh, so many Scots are represented by SNP or Green MSPs or MPs that are chomping at the bit for this. I just wonder how, how much do you think that Wales would ever, the people of Wales would ever really be able to decide that? Um, even if, for example, it returned 40 or oh, 32, as it will be, MPs of supporting uh, independence of whatever flavour within Plaid Cymru, the Labour Party or the Greens or whatever, uh, you know, how, how much impact do you think that might make, if at all? I mean, if you want to get a referendum out of the Conservative Party, the best thing to do is make them think they'll win it. <laughs> I mean, the last few in, um, referendums they've done, what are we talking, AV, um, Scottish and EU, they all thought they'd, they'd, they'd win them. Twice they were right, once they were wrong. <laughs> so a democratic sucker punch is what you're thinking here, is the, is the only way that an independence <laughs> uh, campaign can win? No, I, I mean, I, I think it's the whole thing of Wales not voting for a Conservative government, Scotland not voting for a Conservative government and not being allowed, I think, one thing I would say is, I mean, London hasn't voted for a Conservative government for quite some time as well, if we're going to talk about representation. I mean, part of the book, what I look at is Quebec as an example. Um, Quebec has come very, very close, especially on one occasion, to leaving Canada um, and voting to leave. They have got a very, very clearly defined way in which independence happens. It has input from all the members of the country, because bear in mind, under our current model in, of referendums, someone in Hereford who sits on the border of Wales will have no say in the breakup of their country if there's a Welsh referendum. Uh, I'm, I'm going off a bit here. So let's talk about, as you say, um, how much influence will they have? I, I think there's, um, it will be challenging while there's a current, a current Conservative government. I think it's very much possible that under a Conservative government, there could be um, referendums and reform. I think at the moment under a Boris Johnson-led Tory administration, I think it's um, quite unlikely. I do wonder, though, the strength of an independence movement if you didn't have a Conservative, a Boris Johnson-led Conservative government. I wonder how much air that would take out of the sales. Disliking the Westminster government and deciding that independence is the way to solve that you don't like, breaking up a, a country um, and having independence is the way to solve that. I think, well, I think that reflects two things. I think it firstly reflects how intransigent people see the UK is to change. And I think that's quite a statement that some people will be like, well, I think independence would be an easier way to solve these immensely complicated problems than changing government. I think that's a, I think that says a lot in of itself, doesn't it? Obviously everything inside the UK and outside will affect, will affect Wales, it's inevitable. We're an immensely interconnected island. And I mean, part of that maybe in itself is an argument not to have independence, but I, I think, Scotland is going to be the big factor. Writing the book, I'm, I'm writing it thinking, God, is this going to be immediately out of date if Scotland leave? Um, but I think that Scotland, I, I don't think you can look at Welsh independence as, oh, well, if Scotland goes, we have to go. I think Scotland, I think that presumes that Scotland will go, which I don't think that's guaranteed. As I say, Quebec had an immensely close vote and then changes were made. Um, I think, you know, Wales should plan for itself. I don't think I think it's a weird view going, we should go for independence if Scotland does. I think we should go for independence if it's right for Wales and for the people in Wales. So in answer to your question, it's going to be very hard. It's immensely complicated. And, oh, God, I wish I wasn't writing a book about this. Well, to what extent will you look at the relationship of the Labour Party to independence? Obviously, we've seen in the last few years more and more 
people who are Labour supporters, Labour members, backing independence. But you still see Mark Drakeford very resistant to it, although he is held up as an exemplar of a politician who sees the problems in the UK and is willing to try and change it as likely as that may or may not be. But to a lot of people in the Labour Party, I think they understand their importance to that debate in, in Wales, don't they? I think that they re- that I think a lot of the independence campaigners also realise that without the Labour Party, and I think it is the Labour Party rather than Labour voters, they will struggle to ever get over the line in terms of independence. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I think Drake, I saw polling data that said Drakeford was more popular with Plaid voters than he was with Labour voters, which is uh, which is interesting. Um, it, it's tough because obviously Drakeford is advocating for home rule. And actually, if if all of that came to pass, independence is a much, much harder sell um, at the moment, essentially, because there is no give from the, I, I say the centre, from Westminster. There's no kind of concession there. They, they don't negotiate with independence. Um, they, it, it's almost like there's, it, it forces a lot of very disparate groups together to support this idea of independence or further devolution. I think, I actually think one of the best things you could do to stop actually the breakup of the United Kingdom is giving more power to Wales. And I mean, I, I think actually if you had major devolution in Wales with tax, serious tax raising powers and the ability to, well, if he wants to set up a universal basic income, whatever he fancies, I think actually that will present a whole range of other problems because essentially the more Cardiff matters, the more issues you've got with the North-South divide in Wales, for example. Um, But I think Labour have firmly parked their tanks, if not fully on Clyde's lawn, they're they're kind of, they're on the pavement just outside, aren't they? They haven't given Clyde much room to go. And I think there's a lot of people who are very, there are some people who are very passionate about independence. There are a lot of people who are just completely fatigued at the idea of further upheaval i think if you could have a increased devolution and um, more autonomy for wales i think it would take uh, a huge amount of sting out of both opposing sides of the argument and that's what labor seem to be doing i mean i'm not putting my own personal view on the uh, the merits of either side but i think i, I think late obviously labor did get a very stomping win in um, in may I, I do think that the drakeford factor in that was very big and I don't know how much of a ringing endorsement it is for Labour more widely, as opposed to Mark Drakeford and the last 18 months. God, it's nice just to, I just feel like I'm just musing now. I don't think I'm, I'm asking a question. If, if, a, if a politician answered one of my questions like this, I'd be absolutely disgusted with them. It's because we, we find it so interesting, Will. And I'm, you know, I'm sure we'll all find this book incredibly interesting when it's published. When do you think that will be? And I've got a sort of uh, attached question to that. When you do get around to publishing the book, do you think that the debate around independence will be healthier at that point? Do you think it will be uh, a debate, like you say, the, like, the, like the one you want, that treats the arguments based on their facts rather than the you know, very strongly held passions on either side? So, um, to answer question, yeah, publishing late autumn next year um, with Biteback. I have to hand in the final draft by the end of May, which is terrifying. Um, every, every time I look out and it's getting darker later in the, earlier in the evening, I get more and more terrified of that. But um, in terms of the state we'll be in, I think maybe, I mean, maybe Plaid will have woken up after the election by then. Um, I, I think 
it'll be interesting to see how they wake up and what they kind of look to do. I think a lot of it will be driven by Scotland and what is happening there, even though I don't think the Welsh debate should be driven by that, but it will put it into the, I mean, it normalises the idea of independence, doesn't it? What's happening in Scotland. And I think a big part of it will also be what um, Labour decide to do with their newfound working majority. Um, I think that will be pretty key. I think in terms of the quality of debate, I actually think it's going down. I, I think when I saw certain advocates for independence before, I think there was I think the drive at the moment seems to be to just get people to notice. Look at it. Look at this. Look at this issue. It's here. It's here. It's here. And that's fine. You can stick thing. You can stick stickers on signs. You can get Facebook likes. But ultimately, what a lot of that does is chat to your echo chamber. And I think you don't get this point across by talking to echo chambers. Um, I think you've you've harvested all the fruit that's going to be got through posting, sharing memes of Boris Johnson saying, especially especially when there's stuff that's wrong. This is the frustration I've had. I, I saw um, one of the independence campaign groups put up a, a post about it was how the social care um, money would be delegated and the fact Wales would be taxed to fund something. And actually, it was never going to, that money was going to come back to Wales. And if you want to leave the United Kingdom and leave behind wild misinformation and lies on social media and your politics. I have complete sympathy with not wanting to have that in your politics, but you do not become part of the cure by being part of the disease. So you need to actually have a much more informed, logical debate to actually win over the people who don't already agree with you. And this isn't just the yes side. I mean, it's a absolutely endemic in political discourse that it's we're really good at getting people who already agree with us to like our posts, but we're terrible at getting convincing anyone. I mean, how many times do you see people from opposition part? I mean, say Tory Scum was just in the in the news recently, wasn't it? I mean, I don't think I've ever changed my view to agree with someone because they've called me scum. <laughs> I mean, I don't I don't know what world that is where I mean, if you want somebody to vote not conservative, you need somebody um who is already voted conservative to change their mind. And uh, we saw with Brexit calling people idiots and stuff doesn't get you get you anywhere but I could I could lay this at the ground of every single political party in the UK that they just shout their own echo chamber so yeah um predictions we'll see what happens with Scotland we, I don't think the standard debate will be better I think it'll be worse because that's just a trend for the last two decades isn't it from all sides of the political spectrum um but then again who would do predictions they're an absolute mugs game especially now and I'm saying this as a guy who's writing a book which is essentially a long list of hypotheticals so <laughs> who knows well, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. If people want to hear more from you, obviously they can find you on Wales Online, but where can they find you on Twitter? Um, I'm on Twitter at Will Hey Cardiff, and I'm on, I've just got Instagram because I'm told that's where everyone is, um, at Will underscore Haywood underscore journal. Wonderful. Thank you very much for talking to us. If you've enjoyed what you've heard this evening, please do not forget to find us on Medium at Heroic Blog Cymru, on Facebook at Heroic Blog Cymru, and on Twitter at Heroic Blog. Thank you for listening to Hereith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.